0: Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe what I hear on podcasts, and you shouldn't either. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself to confirm veracity. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you can do for me is to let me know so that I may correct myself. You can do that at livingthroughextinction@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please also be aware that swearing is a natural part of my vernacular, and I don't bleep anything out, so listener discretion is advised. <music> I'm Ruby, and this is episode 73 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. Today, I have segments on LGBTQ biases in healthcare, a 17 year old who may have just changed the future of electric vehicles, avian flu and red foxes and other mammals, a small cancer trial which has shown 100% remissions for all patients and an article from ScienceBasedMedicine.org titled, Pseudo-Profound Bullshit. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. I read an article by Jonathan Howard at ScienceBasedMedicine.org entitled, Pseudo-Profound Bullshit. Bullshit, and had to share some of his points, especially considering how bullshit is conning and radicalizing more people every day. The term was first used several years ago, and Mr. Howard describes it as, quote, seemingly impressive assertions that are presented as true and meaningful, but are actually vacuous. End quote. In other words, they use large impressive sounding words, which would probably be found in different science texts, but slap them together in a few sentences which anyone who already knows these words will see as gibberish. But anyone not educated in these areas may think sounds very smart and complicated. And so to them, it must be true. He talks about how pseudo profound bullshitters are often sellers of woo, and they don't want people to think about how their product works. So they say what they can to put the potential buyer off, to keep their mind going in specific directions so they don't have a moment to think about what the product actually is or how it's supposed to work. Quote, their empty words are a form of manipulative poetry used to lull people into a thoughtless trance, trigger emotions, and convince people they've been given unique access to some secret knowledge. Pseudo-profound bullshit is also designed to inspire awe in the pseudo-profound bullshitter who is desperate to be perceived as more enlightened than everyone else. Unquote. According to the studies of those who initially coined the term, quote, those more receptive to bullshit are less reflective, lower in cognitive ability, are more prone to ontological confusions and conspiratorial ideation, are more likely to hold religious and paranormal beliefs, and are more likely to endorse complementary and alternative medicine. Unquote. We are seeing this with MAGA. We are seeing this with COVID. I mean, it's everywhere, but with MAGA and COVID, the bullshit has been Overwhelming. The election was corrupt. Trump is a decent person. COVID is harmless. Immunizations make you magnetic. So much bullshit. People want to lay blame or try to get others to lay blame on those they oppose and are using these methods to do so. Mr. Howard says that the situation we all found ourselves in with COVID created the perfect opening for conspiracy theorists and their pseudo-profound bullshit. He says the formula used by these corrupt individuals is pretty basic. They just have to string together spooky-sounding pandemic buzzwords in grammatically correct sentences. The example provided is The Fauci lockdown destroyed freedom. Total bullshit, but made up of key words to get people riled up. And it works, be it on a pretty specific part of the population. I've left out a lot because y'all should go read the article and check out the examples given for yourselves. I just wanted to put it on people's radar. It can be found at sciencebasedmedicine.org and was published on September 23rd, 2022. Again, that's by Jonathan Howard. Oh, and remember to be skeptical, damn it! A 17-year-old has designed a motor that could transform the future of electric vehicles. Robert Sansone from Fort Pierce, Florida has been described as a natural engineer. He has completed at least 60 projects in his spare time, including developing animatronic hands, high-speed running boots, and a go-kart that exceeds 70 miles per hour. For this latest project, he decided he wanted to attempt the design of a motor which would not have sustainability issues. To do this, he started with knowledge we already have And worked to improve it this synchronous reluctance motor which is used for pumps and fans does not use rare metals but is also not powerful enough to power a vehicle so he decided to begin with this model and work towards tweaking it to be more powerful with no money for materials he had to make a working scale model with the help of a 3d printer there were 14 failed attempts before he got a working prototype It took all of his spare time for about a year before succeeding with a prototype which, get this, exceeds current torque by 39% and efficiency by 31%. That's a hell of a great start. Robert won first place in $75,000 in prizes at the Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair, which is the largest international high school STEM competition, and it said he's paving the way for sustainable manufacturing of electric vehicles. Right now, high manufacturing costs make this one hard to move forward on, but give it time. Assuming, of course, theocracies allow for this type of science to continue after they take over. This past April, the Dane County Humane Society received numerous horrifying reports of fox kits with visibly disturbing symptoms. They were seen shaking, twitching, seizing, walking in circles, struggling to stand, wandering alone and excessively salivating. They appeared lethargic and blind, and some were even found dead. Some of the reported fox kits were caught and cared for. Rabies was quickly rolled out, as well as the possibility of low blood sugar. Microscopic examination revealed lots of inflammation of the brain in a pattern consistent with viral lesions. It was confirmed when the tissue and blood tests came back. The fox kits all had a highly virulent strain of avian influenza. In 2021, the Eurasian H5N1 virus spread across Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. It reached North America by the end of that year. This particular bird flu is proving to have a much higher rate of transfer than previous lineages, and it's been getting into ducks, geese, gulls, terns, and more. Many of these birds are common prey for mammals, including humans. With the bird population having higher and higher rates of this lineage of bird flu, it was only a matter of time before mammals began eating some of them. Once they eat the infected bird, they become infected and can infect others of their species. Thankfully, humans are usually saved from the cooking we do. It's not impossible, but it's a lot less likely for us to get it from eating because of that skill we've acquired. Since arriving on U.S. shores, 36 states have reported infected flocks of poultry, and at least seven states ended up detecting them in red fox kits. Also positive so far were two bobcats in Wisconsin, one coyote pup in Michigan, foxes, otters, a lynx, a polecot, and a badger in Europe, and skunks in Canada. There have been just two known human cases so far, one in the U.S. and one in Britain. Both individuals had frequent close contact with live birds, so it's believed they both acquired it through there. The sad thing for the red foxes is this lineage appears to be a lot more lethal with them than with other mammals. And the fox kits are being hit even harder than the adults. It's hypothesized that this is due to the fact that they have not yet fully developed their immune systems. What we have to keep in mind is that this happens. When viruses are allowed to spread and evolve, they can end up particularly dangerous to a specific species. This lineage is brutal on red foxes. There's no reason to think a lineage in the future won't emerge, which would be particularly brutal on humans. A Vivian flu of coronavirus, if it's out there evolving in the animal population, basically the longer it's allowed to spread and duplicate, the higher the chances that a people killer could eventually exist among an animal population. In a New York Times article, Richard Webby, an influenza virologist at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, points out that evolution is a numbers game. The more mammals infected, the more opportunities to pick up mutations which could help it to spread among different creatures, including us. Fortunately, no species have yet been put at risk because of the virus. I will do a follow-up if it's announced that this has changed. For this episode, I put together notes for Biases in Healthcare, Part 4. Parts 1 to 3 were sex based biases, race based biases, and weight based biases, and those can be found as the research segments of episodes 66, 67, and 69. Today I wanted to talk about LGBTQ biases, but unfortunately the research is somewhat minimal at this time. I couldn't find a lot to pull from. A lot of what we do see comes down to education. Professionals aren't being taught what they need to know about some of these groups of people who have different medical and medicinal and mental needs. We also know for sure that when an LGBTQ person experiences a form of bias or stigma with a medical professional, it can be very difficult to convince them to get help afterwards when they may need it. The fear of victimization and stigma can deter them from seeking tests or treatment for their ailments. As we saw in parts one, two, and three, when this type of thing causes delays in getting help, it does cost lives. Back to the education side, I read about a study at ScienceDirect.com. It was conducted on nurses and midwives and LGBTQ plus patients. The study came to the following conclusions: heteronormativity in healthcare can lead to health disparities for LGBTQ plus patients. Many nurses and midwives do not have sufficient knowledge about LGBTQ health issues, which in many cases are different and do have special physical and/or medicinal factors that have to be considered. Transgender patients face the most negative attitudes and beliefs. LGBTQ issues should be included in undergraduate studies. Issues arise from heteronormativity and lack of education on LGBTQ health. An analysis of 24 papers showed primary themes, one of which was heteronormativity across healthcare and another of which was queerphobia. Both bad trends. Now, like I said, there wasn't a lot to pull from, but I did find some scholarly articles and I'm gonna share a bit of what I found and some of what I was able to read. One, which published in the Oxford Press, looks at the effects of the experience bias on BIPOC and or LGBTQ people. 25 individuals were interviewed about unfair treatment and discrimination experienced when visiting healthcare providers. They were asked to describe their reactions to the treatment they received, as well as their future reactions and if those were affected by said treatment. I thought this was a very interesting angle to look at the issue from. What they found was that patients reacted in one of four ways, fighting, fleeing, excusing, or working around the bias people coped in one of six ways going forward. Delaying or avoiding care, changing healthcare providers, self-prescribing, covering behaviors, experiencing health complications, or mistrusting healthcare institutions. And the study identified three areas we need to move forward in. Improving the behavior of medical professionals towards all their patients, supporting patient advocacy, and addressing the power dynamics in healthcare. Now, this journal article at the Oxford University Press website has its full details behind a paywall, so I couldn't get into all the processes and procedures used. There's more information I would have liked to get at, but I'm not about to give up any part of my grocery funds just to read a study or article in full. At tnfonline.com, there's a study which was, quote, aimed at exploring attitudes of medical students towards LGBTQ in Malaysia, This one was conducted in 2018 and consisted of 29 participants. Among them, they found implicit biases, explicit biases, and neutrality, which is the one in compliance with the Professional Code of Conduct. Everyone is supposed to be neutral, but of course, they're not. On the positive side of things, the Canadian Federation of Medical Students is calling for action. They recognize the negative impact of LGBTQ discrimination even within their own membership. They're calling on the federal and provincial governments to conduct nationwide environmental scans to determine the current state of LGBTQ healthcare in the country. They're also calling on the governments to develop and implement specific policies and strategies to ensure that LGBTQ patients have access to comprehensive, High quality healthcare that is free of prejudice. And they are calling on them to support research into the healthcare needs of LGBTQ populations. They also put out calls for others to do their part. They called on the Association of Faculties of Medicine in Canada, as well as individual faculties of medicine. They called on all the medical students in Canada. They even called on their own organization and its board of directors to work towards improvement in LGBTQ healthcare. You can see the details of all the recommendations made to each of these groups at cfms.org. There's still a long way to go with LGBTQ plus biases in healthcare, but at least now it's on the radar of those who can make a difference, and there are actually steps they can take thanks to the Canadian Federation of Medical Students. Good on that organization, and good on all of those who take the recommendations seriously and make change. A small cancer trial conducted with rectal cancer patients has had results never before seen in any cancer trial of any size. Every single patient ended the trial in complete remission with no return as of their last follow-ups which were at 25 months post-treatment. Even with a sample size this small, it was only 12 people. For every single one to have 100% remission That's fucking huge. Each of the 12 had a form of colorectal cancer, which consists of tumors which do not respond well at all to standard cancer treatments. For those patients, there haven't been a lot of good options up to now. The hope initially was that this treatment would get a start on the tumors, maybe weakening them, I guess. And then it could be followed up with chemo or radiotherapy and surgery. A drug called Dostarmalab is a treatment which was being tested on humans for this trial. It's an immunotherapy medicine that gives the immune system a push towards attacking the patient's cancer. I believe one way I saw it put was that it revs up the immune system, giving it the ability to see and attack the cancer. The patients took the drug every three weeks for six months, and not one had to endure any chemo or radiotherapy or surgery after. It wasn't necessary. They had all gone into complete remission all of them i can't stress this enough this doesn't happen mri scans pet scans biopsies endoscopic tests physical exams no sign of cancer on any of them six months of follow-up showed no detectable cancer cells or significant side effects another huge bonus This treatment doesn't affect fertility, sexual health, or bowel and bladder function the way today's common cancer medications do. And at the 25-month mark, there had still been no recurrences. This trial has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's all very promising, but will obviously have to be replicated. It's time for a larger trial to be conducted, and maybe on a wider variety of cancers. I hope I come across it when that happens so I can do an update. This is hopeful medical news for sure. I've tossed the last of my notes off the table, so that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. I'd like to say thank you to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project almost three years ago. I never would have taken the jump to do it on my own if he hadn't started with me. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer. On Instagram, Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my family. Y'all are very supportive and I just hope I make you proud every now and then. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 74 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate, and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under Pod on Twitter. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.